This is episode 65 with Jessica Smith. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. I know I say this a lot, but I'll say it again because I'm buzzing about this episode. I am so grateful for my work and my podcasting journey because I'm able to share time with beautiful souls like Jessica Smith. If you're a long-time listener to the show, you'll know that I'm truly inspired by strong females and women creating awesomeness in the world. If you're not a long-time listener and didn't know this, I've shared on previous episodes that it's because I've had many strong female mentors in my life and I kind of feel like it's part of my blood and my soul to learn from and be surrounded by such legends. Jessica Smith is a sought-after motivational and public speaker and MC. She was born as an arm amputee and represented Australia for swimming in the 2004 Paralympic Games. She's also a loving wife and mother and an author and storyteller. Since retiring from international competition, she has dedicated her life to raising awareness around mental health and mental illness with specific emphasis on body image and eating disorders. Her aim is to highlight that mental health is about wellness rather than illness. She also created the award-winning social media campaign, Join the Revolution, and is an ambassador for Lane Beachley's Aim for the Stars Foundation. She was recently awarded Emerging Leader by the Australian Government at the Positive Body Image Awards and was recently awarded a Pride of Australia medal in Western Australia. In 2015, Jessica was also a state finalist for Young Australian of the Year and more recently, in 2017, Jess was awarded Woman of the Year by Cosmopolitan Magazine in the Game Changer category. With all these accolades aside, Jessica's proudest life moment is recently becoming a mother. Jess has had such a captivating story and she pours out many vulnerabilities in this chat. You'll hear her talk a lot about the mental strength training she's done over the years to help with all the tough, dark experiences she's had and how the skills she learned are still utilized by her up to this day. So stay tuned to the outro to hear how you have an opportunity to learn these powerful skills and habits in your own life. Jessica's new path to motherhood inspired her to create a series of books that celebrates children's differences and encourages self-confidence no matter their physical appearance. The first book is titled Little Miss Jessica Goes to School and we kick off this chat talking about the crux of the book and the deep impact it's having. 
Little Miss Jessica Goes to School is a book about a young girl with one arm on her first day at school, which of course can be a daunting experience for any young child. So I wanted to create a resource that told a really fun story, but with a powerful message. So it's really just a beautiful story that follows this journey of a little girl um, where she meets other kids on her first day and she realises that yes, she is different because of the way that she looks and she experiences you know, a wave of different emotions because of that. But during the day, she realises, and as do all the other kids, that in fact, they're all different. And it's those differences that are bringing them together rather than sort of, you know, segregating them even further. And it was something that uh, sprung to mind after years and years of working as a motivational speaker in high schools, predominantly with young females talking about body image issues. And I just felt as though I wasn't really winning the war in that area, if that makes sense. And I thought I need to be able to do something more with younger kids. How can I prevent these issues from arising in the first place? And I really thought about it quite a lot. And I, I came to the conclusion that writing a children's book where the message was was fun and simple, simple, sorry, but also uh, complex, you know, I guess as an adult reading it, you, you pick up a whole heap of different messages that you wouldn't if you were a young child. And the reason behind that was because I thought if we, we could start introducing resources that depicted who and what children saw in everyday life, maybe it would help with their journey of making that more normal and seeing difference and diversity as a wonderful thing rather than something to be to be fearful. So that's how it all sort of came about. And how has the feedback been with that as a mission and an underlying driver to get it out there? Yeah, it's been really interesting. At the beginning, I, I wouldn't say it was rejection, but I got a lot of publishers who sort of said, oh, it's quite you know, unique and it's a bit of a niche market. So we're not sure if we can support it. And so that was kind of, you know, hard because it's all, you know, my passion and labor of love and everything and sort of being told that, you know, um, maybe it was, it was, um, too unique. And so I thought, okay, stuff it. I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to pardon the pun and, um, self-publish and invest my own money into this because I knew that as a young child myself, you know, having a disability, I would have loved to have a resource like this, you know, to help me through those those difficult times. And so I decided that that's what I was going to do. Uh, I was living in Perth at the time. So I wrote the book and I was really um, eager to ensure that it was an Australian product through and through and that I was supporting local businesses and local artists. So the, the, or the, sorry, the artist who did the illustrations is from Perth and it was also printed and published in Perth. And within a week, I had made my money back through sales. And so it was a really good, I suppose, validation for me to realise that people did want to read about this. And it was a topic of interest, not just for young kids, but for families, for teachers, um, and also, most importantly, not just for children who have a disability, but for you know, all children. And I think that was another really important message that I wanted to to um portray as well is that there wasn't just a book for children who had special needs. I wanted this to be a book for all children to read because children encounter other kids with disabilities all the time. So what a great way for them to have said, oh, I read about, you know, a little girl who has one arm or I read about, you know, a little boy who wears hearing aids or glasses or whatever the difference may be. And so, yeah, you know, in the last couple of years, it was about two years ago, I've had to do another reprint because the sales have gone so well, both here in Australia and also overseas. And so uh, it's been so exciting and it's just 
reaffirmed to me that this is an issue that really needs to be spoken about at a much younger age when you know we're discussing diversity and disability. And so it really is such a proud um, creation of mine and something that I um yeah, just it, it's quite humbling to know that people are sort of wanting to to buy something that I have written and something that I have created in order to help their family or their child on their journey through that you know discovery and exploration sort of period. So yeah, it's been it's been very very exciting. It's such a beautiful way to like you said it highlights the disability factor, and I love having other athletes and people on with a disability like Kurt Fernley such a, a great voice for disability and I love yeah. how you've come from this angle in in that way but it's it's so much more than that like you said just listening to you speak and understanding what the book's about I can see that it's a, it's a whole concept for kids to become comfortable and okay about differences either with themselves or with their peers. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, you know, this is something that um, I guess because I have grown up being that different person, you know, being the odd one out, being the one that had a disability and always struggling with my self-identity and my confidence and all of those things, um, I realised, you know, I never read about people that looked like me. You know, it was always fairy tales and Disney, which is fantastic. You know, we need those sorts of characters to spark our imagination. But I think I would have really valued having a book that had a character that looks like me because then I would have realized that, hey, you know, it's okay to be who I am. And that was, a, you know, a huge driving force behind why I did this and why the story was so important. And, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, children's books, it's sort of easy to write, you know, it doesn't take that much effort. But there was a lot of hard work and a lot of research that went into this because I wanted to to be um, about inclusion and about diversity on a much broader level. Um, but like I said in the beginning, you know, it, for it to be a fun way for kids to learn about those things, you know, that they can read about characters that they identify with. And I think that's really, really important. And is this the first book of a series that you'll be doing? Yes. So I have actually written two more in the series, but oh, Becoming a Mum has sort of slowed that process down just a little bit. So, yeah, there, there are uh, other books that have uh, have been written and we're just in the process now of getting the artwork finalised. And, you know, like I said, it's it's quite a long process um, and I'm also in the talks with a few different publishers now because they've seen the success of the first one and have realised that in actual fact that niche and unique market they were talking about is something that um, – they might want to get themselves into, and so it's been it's been a very interesting journey in that sense of me um, having a lot of self pride and not wanting to sort of let go of this project that I've been working on, but realizing now that it has the potential to help so many more people, and it, it it's bigger than me, and I have to be able to see uh, the beauty in that and be empowered by that. So yeah, it's um, yeah very fun journey, and writing has really been. I guess, more important now that I've become a mother because I realise just how crucial it is to have books like that where my own kids are able to absorb a really powerful message. So um, hopefully in the next sort of 12 to 18 months, the rest of the series will be available. Move over, JK Rowling. Here comes Jessica Smith. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Before we dive in deeper, I want to say, Jess, welcome to Your Life of Impact. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to, to talk with you and to share a bit more about my life, a lot of what people probably don't know. Well, I'm extremely grateful to have you on the show and we've been connected through a couple of different paths actually. So 
Our involvement in the Paralympic world has seen us cross paths a couple of times and we've also got mutual connections to Cobar people as your best friends (laughs) with uh, Britt Fuger from Cobar who I know very well and good mates with her brother and her parents were great mates with my grandparents. So I feel like we're kind of family, Jess. It's such a small world, isn't it? But that's (laughs) what I love. I love that about small towns as well. So yeah, it's, it's been really interesting to see how your journey has unfolded and mine as well and now to sort of come back you know a few years later and to be able to have a chat I think it's really cool absolutely now (laughs) speaking of Paralympics you represented Australia at the Athens 2004 Paralympics in swimming how did that swimming journey come about for you were you always good at that sport yeah swimming was a huge part of my life from a very young age I was always a water baby you know I have you know fond memories of splashing around in the backyard pool I think sport was um a way for me to prove to myself and to other people that I didn't have to be limited by my appearance or by my disability. So from a young age, I was always very active because the only way I saw to be able to to prove people wrong, you know, a lot of people telling me that I wouldn't be able to do things and that my life would be quite limited because of the fact that I had one arm and, and all of this sort of stuff. Um, sport was just that that natural way for me to be able to say, no, um, I'm going to use my body to prove to you and to prove to everybody else that I'm capable capable of doing so much more than what people are telling me that I will be able to. And swimming was just a sport that I fell in love with and there was a natural talent there, definitely, so that made it easier for me to, to like it. And I think it was about age 10, I started um, really taking it serious. I swam in the school swimming carnival and I beat all the girls and all the boys with two arms and everyone was extremely surprised, myself included. And it was the first time that I felt this wave of self-accomplishment and pride and just this boost in self-esteem you know I'd been was being recognized for something positive something that my body could do rather than something that my body couldn't do and I remember sort of saying to my mum and dad I want to swim you know I'm good at this I love doing this This is what I want to do for forever and so that was the moment that sort of sparked my obsession with with being in the water and it just kind of unfolded from there you know training um going to different competitions learning about um competitions for people that had a disability you know I grew up in a country town in New South Wales and so there weren't any other athletes around me with a disability I wasn't even aware of the Paralympics until a couple of years later Um, but it was just something that made me feel good about myself and I think you know that's why I was able to progress so quickly at such a young age because I just love doing it. So with that initial internal driver for you to do well at that, to almost prove that people were saying the wrong things to you, how much of that stayed with you throughout your career where you were swimming more for that as opposed to the love or did that fade early? Great question. And I, this is what I've started talking about more and more recently, the fact that it stayed with me from that entire career and it actually became quite detrimental. So I, in many ways I was living a double life. I was able to have this great swimming career. I was very successful from a young age. You know, I was swimming in the open age bracket by the time I was 13. I was on my first international trip by the time I was 13. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of hype and excitement. But behind closed doors, I was still very much trying to grapple and work my way through the fact that I was still different. I was still had body image issues. I still had self-esteem issues because there was this whole, you know, group within society that still didn't, I felt, didn't 
or sorry, didn't give me the opportunity to, to be who I was. And so unfortunately for me, um, I don't feel that my swimming career got to the point where it could have because all of this sort of dark thoughts and feelings that I was having around the fact that I, you know, had a disability and that I didn't feel people were supportive of enough uh, led to depression and also led to eating disorders, which ultimately ended my swimming career. So um, it, it's quite, you know, a, a very weird scenario to have been so good at something and felt so at home and in love with the pool and so safe and secure there to then also have this side of my life that basically destroyed that comfort zone because I just wasn't able to talk about those dark thoughts and feelings and it eventually became a mental illness that took over my entire life and I had to go a completely different direction. So on paper, my swimming career doesn't look like it was that successful. By the time I got to Athens, I had been living with an eating disorder for almost a decade uh, in a secret way. You know, not many people knew about it. I was able to hide and mask a lot of my behaviours as being an elite athlete, you know, being very regimented with my exercise, which like you touched on before, I was doing that more so as a way to sort of punish myself rather than training, if that makes sense. And the same with the foods that I was eating or the, the foods that I wasn't eating. It wasn't so much about, you know, wanting to be the best athlete, more um, using this as an outlet because I still didn't feel good enough within society. So by the time I got to Athens, um, I was expected to swim in three individual events and also the relays. But I didn't swim fast enough in the individual events, so I didn't make it to the realise. And I'm actually the only person on that Australian swimming team that didn't make a final. And it was absolutely devastating. And, you know, it's only been very recently that I've been able to openly and honestly talk about that aspect of the Games because when people hear me speak, I think they're expecting a Hollywood ending, you know, oh, this girl who's, you know, been born with a disability has gone on to represent her country, has experienced mental health and an eating disorder, and then she must go on and win gold. And unfortunately for me, that's just simply not my story. I'm the one person who who didn't go on to win gold. And there's so many of us who have a story to tell. And I think it's, it's sort of um, just been the next chapter or, you know, in in my very weird and wonderful story, I guess you could say. But, yeah, it's it, it stayed with me for forever. And as much as I look at my swimming career and do think that it was successful, I know that a lot of people think, you know, it probably wasn't. But it has enabled me. Everything that I've learnt uh, and gone through hasn't set me up for the life that I'm living now. So, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, was swimming my life, was that going to be my career? I would have absolutely said yes. And I wanted to continue doing that. That was what I saw my future um, and wanted to go on to win gold, wanted to keep going, you know, to Beijing and London. Um, but this dark side of my life just didn't allow me to do that. So um, it's it's a very, very weird scenario, but I'm very grateful for my swimming career. And in my mind, I do see it as having been very successful because I don't think um, I would have been able to achieve what I've done outside of the pool today had it not been for those experiences in the pool. It's really interesting you put it like that because I find that a lot of people who have experienced major adversities and even some minor adversities and to reflect on that time, it's really hard in that moment to realize that this is actually 
potentially something really good for yourself. It's very masked by a lot of the the deep, dark times and the pain that you're in at the moment. But to be able to grow through that, and like you said, now reflecting on that, your journey now and the impact that you're having in other people's lives because of that, because you don't have that fairy tale ending and because you've been able to come to terms with it yourself and weigh it up, that's actually far more powerful than being that successful Paralympic swimmer. Exactly. And you've said it, you know, so articulately then, and this is, I suppose, why it's taken me so long to get to the point where I can speak honestly about it is because there was so much shame and so much guilt around that in the fact that, you know, I didn't swim to expectation and having, you know, the the shame and guilt around a mental illness is what kept that so secret and so, um, you know, like I suppose I, I didn't want to talk about that. I didn't want people to know that that was what I was going through as well. But now to realize that in fact all of that together is what's made me who I am today and it has enabled me to go on and do things like write the book, to have a story to tell when I'm speaking, you know, whether it be in a corporate setting or whether it be to young kids or teenagers. It's all of those things. It's working through that adversity, overcoming all of those challenges. Um, but like you said, when you're living in it at the, at the time, it's so suffocating. It's so overwhelming. And there were many days when I just couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't see where my life would be. There was no, you know, I was so used to setting goals in the pool and and having so much structure around, you know, training and and what I wanted to achieve. But outside of the pool, I really struggled to, to do that. And so when my swimming career started to fade away, I was so lost and I was so depressed and just really, um, yeah, just really grappling with, you know, who the hell was I? Where was I supposed to be? What was I supposed to do? And and that can take a lot of time to work through that. It can be very, very painful. It can be very isolating and lonely. But thank God I have done all that and have gone through all that because, you know, I look at my life now and this is my success story. This is a gold medal moment now, the life I'm living today. And, um, and like I said, I'm just grateful that I was able to to just keep going one step at a time because there were many days where, you know, I probably would have ended things had it not been for just believing in just one step at a time, one day at a time. And where did that belief come from? Were you working with professionals? Yes, there were periods after I came back from Athens where I knew that if I didn't, start taking you know advice from professionals that things would spiral in, out of control and so I knew that I didn't want to end my life I knew that there, there was something to live for I wasn't sure what that was because you know swimming was no longer in my life or it wasn't an option at that point but I just had I don't know somewhere deep down this little bit of trust you know, and thank God I did because that's what has essentially kept me alive and that's what's enabled me to, to do everything since then. Um, but, yeah, it was trusting in that there were people who did want to support me. I'd pushed everybody in my life away before that. You know, I didn't trust anyone. I didn't want anyone's help. I was convinced that everybody was out to get me. Nobody wanted to to help me through my swimming journey. You know, I had to do everything on my own. And I got to the point in my life where I needed help from other people but in order to accept that help you have to make yourself vulnerable and that's a very very scary place to be Um, but for whatever reason I don't know there was this this innate ability or something that I had that allowed me at that moment to surrender to what was happening around me and just acknowledge that I need to trust this process otherwise it's not going to end well for me and and thank god I did so you know 
I don't know. There's not like a specific moment or a specific thing that somebody said that, you know, triggered me to realise that, okay, um, this is what you have to do. It was just, yeah, like I said, I suppose this level of trust and a little bit of hope that it's going to be okay. You know, I just have to to just go one day at a time. And that's, and that's what I did. Vulnerability is power. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. It so is. And you're a, a great advocate for around mental health. And I love that you say that mental health is about wellness and not illness. And I'm a massive advocate for this yes. because – I'm an ambassador for youth mental health charity called Batia, and their motto Love is. Love them. Oh, you know them, yeah. Love them, yes. <laughs> so you would know their their motto is to hashtag smash the stigma of mental health. So how how do you educate people on mental health as wellness? I think it's about talking more and more. You know, when when we talk more about something, it becomes a little bit more normal. It becomes um, easier for people to to feel vulnerable. Like you said, it's a very powerful state to actually be in. And I think the key to that is communication. So by me talking and talking and talking more um, and by other people like yourself and by having, you know, organisations like Batir and all of that saying, hang on a second, let's, let's talk about this more in a positive light. Let's talk about the idea that mental health is something that we need to focus on in order to make sure that we're well, in order to make sure we're living our best life and our potential, rather than looking at it as I think past generations have as, oh, you know, let's tread very carefully around the idea of mental health and mental illness. You know, um, I think we're seeing a a dramatic shift and a dramatic change, which is a fantastic thing. And the, the reason that's come about is because more people like myself are willing to talk about it and to say, you know, yes, I've struggled, but that's not a bad thing. Let's, let's find the lessons in that. What can we learn from that, you know? And when we talk about it more, we provide a safe platform and space for other people to share their stories. And I think there's so much power in that. Um, but, but mental health to me, it is about wellness. I mean, if you... If you're, if, you know, feeling, you know, overwhelmed and suffocated in those cloudy days, you know, that's not a nice place to be. So we have to be able to promote the idea of feeling free and feeling that we are in a, a mental state where we're, we're happy and we're content. So we need to be able to encourage that. And that's why, you know, for me, the first and foremost just comes about talking about it more. And I think, like I said, there's there has been a shift and I'm so proud to be part of a generation where talking about that isn't seen as a negative. Um, and I think we're starting to change the conversations that are happening, you know, with, you, you know, older people, you know, parents, grandparents who they weren't able to talk about these things before. And I think... Um, you know, I'm excited by by future generations as well because they're going to continue to break down those final set of barriers and stigmas that exist, and and that is so exciting in itself. Yeah, absolutely. That whole talking about it uh, from a lived experience, and also the the education around mental health as wellness is super powerful. That's what I've found, and and it just teaching people the connection of the the physical, mental, and emotional aspects. And I actually had Clyde Rathbone on an earlier podcast podcast episode and he played rugby for Australia and and he experienced deep bouts of depression and he talked about his journey through that and the understanding of the mind at a really deep level and yep. and then bringing back in exercise that he'd neglected and then coming at it and openly discussing it and working with professionals so the whole gamut of things and 
what I find with my mental strength training online programs that people who are experiencing mental ill health, they're finding so much benefit from understanding more about their minds and how much control they actually have over their thoughts, feelings, behaviors, mindsets, and energetic states. And that actually then wants them to talk about it more because they realize, okay, it's it's human nature for my mind to actually operate in this way. And now I actually have some tools and skills to, to make sure I'm not stuck in those states. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I think it is so important, like you said, that, you know, connecting everything together, like if your mind is well, your your body, your spirit, you know, it is all connected. And I think we're seeing that more and more people are starting to understand that. And like you said, once you understand that once you become aware on that level, you want to talk about it more because, you know, it, it it's freeing and it allows you to be at peace with who you are and what you're experiencing. And, and that's what's, you know, slowly, slowly, um, t- you know, ticking away at, at the stigma that still is still there, definitely, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think, you know, with the work that you're doing um, and the work that is happening in this space and in this industry, it, it is an exciting time because we're seeing more and more people um being who they are and what a wonderful thing, you know, to be able to live in a world where it's it's okay to be who you are, whatever your differences are. And, you know, we still have a very, very long way to go. And, you know, I will we get to a place where everyone feels content with who they are? I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime, but I'm so confident that my daughter and my son will see it in their lifetime because of the work that people like you and I are doing you know, and everyone that you come into contact with. And and again, that is such an exciting thing to be able to know as, as a mother, everything that I do in my life, you know, I want to be able to leave, you know, a positive imprint in my children's life. And, and we're seeing that more and more. And we're seeing this, you know, idea around mental health, mental illness, wellness, you know, it's all starting to, to come together and people are starting to realise that it is all connected. And once we're able to be in a state of mind where we feel present and we feel, you know, self-aware, the power that that can have in every other area of our life, you know, that's that's invaluable. Jess, you mentioned earlier about your eating disorders and you're a great role model and advocate around body image and you're a very sought after public speaker, like you said before. What, what does it mean to you and how did that space come about? Yeah, body image is something and eating disorders is something that I didn't always speak about in the beginning. A lot of people would ask me to come and talk about, you know, my life uh, as a swimmer and as an athlete. And I just found myself being more and more drawn to talking about this other side, you know, the side that wasn't publicized, the side that people didn't know about. And when I did start to share my story through struggling with, with body image issues and with eating disorders, that's when people started to ask more questions in the audience. And I thought, people do want to hear about this and I do want to start talking about this more. And so it's kind of, um, you know, uh, unfolded after that and I realised that um, I had a responsibility to be a voice for people who were, were struggling and I also had a responsibility to give back to the people who had formed part of that support network who would help me through that time. And the best way to do that was through paying it forward. So by sharing my story um, in the hope that it would would help other people. Now, to me, body image um, is becoming more and more complex. It's it's not an issue that's going away. And I think the reason is we're we're sort of missing the mark when it comes to how we approach body image. Body image is, is how we think and feel about our appearance. 
So we cannot just look at beauty, weight, shape, and size. That's just one tiny aspect. If we're to look at, you know, the way we think and feel about our appearance, it encompasses race, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, mental health, and the overall well-being of an individual, and therefore the overall well-being of society. And so I think it's an area that people underestimate a lot and they kind of don't understand the complexities that come from body image. And so that's what I've started, you know, to to research a little bit more, to talk about more in in the the talks that I give. And that is also why I, I wrote the book, because I wanted it to, to you know, the book, I, I suppose, Little Miss Jessica Goes to School, the children's book, is, um, is a way to approach this topic at a younger age, you know, by, I think, not looking and not focusing on weight, shape and size, but how can we talk about diversity and difference among children so that then when they get older, they realise, oh, yeah, body shapes and, you know, all differences are a great thing. And I, and that's my hope anyway, that through um, this, you know, sharing my story and through really focusing on, on diversity, disability, whatever that, you know, includes and what, how I see body image, that I'm able to get to as many people as I can so that we can shift away from focusing just on the beauty and aesthetics because I think by doing that, we're reinforcing a lot of the problems that still exist, you know. When I was at high school, social media wasn't a thing. And so when I go into schools now and talk to girls about the life that they're exposed to, you know, being 24-7 exposed to messages and imagery that is telling them that they're not good enough and that they need to change something in order to be happy. You know, this is a very, very dangerous space. And so I hope that by going into schools and going into communities and talking about body image from a different perspective, you know, we're starting to educate kids and, and adults, everyone, you know, it doesn't matter what age, about the importance of of self-acceptance in order to overcome those body image issues. Um, when you talk about eating disorders, you know, that's then goes to, I suppose, a, a different level within the spectrum of having, you know, a, a mental health issue uh, and mental illness. Eating disorders, um, uh, they're on the rise, not just for women, but also for men. And I think we really need to to talk about that more as well as a society is the pressure that young men face in order to fit a certain body ideal thanks to the imagery and the messages that they've been exposed to within the media how can we overcome that again it always comes back down to to conversation and communication and i think with with eating disorders again there was so much taboo and there was so much stigma associated with that when i was going through through my struggles that i couldn't tell anybody i didn't want to talk about it and it's the same with what Every single thing that people face, every struggle, the more we talk about it, you know, it's like there's this pressure that's relieved from us because we're able to tell somebody our story. And once you you verbalise it and once it's out there, it feels as though those problems aren't anywhere near as big or as scary as what they were when you keep them all inside. And so, you know, I, I love being able to, to share my story, but I also know now the space that I'm in and the platform that I have to talk about these issues it, it's not just about me. You know, how can I involve more and more people? How can I get more and more people talking about their story? Because the more we do that, the more we're able to help one another. And so although the introduction of social media has been very negative in some cases, I also see the power in using social media in a positive way, being able to bring people together, being able to empower people around 
body image issues um, and that's the work that I've been doing you know it, it, it's a great tool for for so many so many things but talking about body image and eating disorders specifically I think it is an opportunity or creates an opportunity for people to to share their story so if we're doing that in a safe space and we're nurturing one another um, then it can be very very helpful but again I think it it like with everything, I don't know, I keep repeating myself, but it always comes back down to that first little bit of communication. And the more we talk about these issues, the easier it becomes for people to feel at peace with the, the struggles that they're going through, you know, personally. I've seen you use the social media power in a positive way. And I've seen some of your videos that have gone viral about the body image and some of the campaigns that you've run. And I'm going to link those. Uh, actually, they've visible through your website which I'm going to link into the show notes and suggest that everyone checks out too but you're also very open have been over the years about the scars on your chest and neck and how this has played a part in your struggles with your body image over time and then hearing you talk today about your passion to educate and impact the younger audiences Jess were you bullied at school having a visible disability having these scars yeah I think we talk about bullying um the what I experienced was isolation and I think this is an an area of bullying that we need to uh concentrate a lot more on as well is feeling excluded and so you know I got the odd comment like oh that girl's only got one arm or you know look at her scars um I suffered a terrible hot water accident when I was a toddler I spilt boiling water on myself and sustained third degree burns to 15% of my body. So you're right, I do, I have prominent scarring on my neck and chest. And so growing up, I was always, you know, too, too worried that people were focusing on my arm. Um, but then I would receive comments from people like, oh, what happened to your neck? And and I suppose they're just questions. And I was able to, to deal with that, okay, well, what I thought was okay at the time, what I struggled with was feeling excluded and feeling as though people weren't wanting me, you know, around. You know, talking about primary school and high school is a very, very challenging time when you're a young person trying to find your own identity and figure out who you are and all of that sort of stuff. Um, But, yeah, having the scars, I think, came into play a little bit later. I remember being uh, at a bar, I don't know how, maybe early 20s, and just with a group of friends, you know, um, having a, a great girls' night. And a guy had said, oh, my God, what happened to your neck? And the way he said it, the, the you know, his body language, it was like he was repulsed or disgusted. And it was the first time that I just felt so embarrassed and so humiliated. And it just, for me, reaffirmed all these issues of, of having negative body image um, and, and just feeling as though, you know, because of the way that I looked, I wasn't going to be accepted. And, you know, that's something really, really hard to to talk yourself through. And it just sort of, you know, I was going through depression at that time, but it sort of, you know, made it even worse, little comments like that. Um, but, but yeah, it's it's been something that I, even to this day, I'm aware of. I've, I think I've reached a point in my life where I don't have the time or energy to care what other people think in a respectful way, you know. Um, if people are going to judge me or not want to get to know me because of the way that I look, then fine. I don't need to have those people in my life anyway. Um, that's That takes... Oh, 
a lot of years of experience to get to that point. When you're a teenager and when you're a young person, you want to feel accepted. You want to feel popular. You want, you know, that same sort of attention that able-bodied people are getting, you know, especially in school. And so, um, yeah, it was it was very challenging. But again, because of all of those things, it's it's given me um, a story to tell. And so, you know, as ironic as it is, I I wouldn't change anything. Uh, and if I could have the scars removed, I wouldn't. If I could have two arms, I wouldn't. You know, and and so I think a lot of people get surprised at hearing that. And and to be honest, if you'd asked me that same question 10, 15 years ago, I think I would have said the same thing. I don't think I wanted to be to be the same or to be you know normal in that sense. I just wanted to be respected, and I just wanted to feel as though that I didn't have to change who I was in order to be happy. But you know, I I, I still wasted so so many years and so much time and energy um, of thinking of ways that I could, you know, fit that societal norm. Um, but like I said, because of all of those things, I'm, I'm able to do what I do now. What you said there before about it, it's such a powerful way to live your life and to just live in alignment and congruently is when that you, you don't cling to the thoughts of what other people think about you and their judgment and their perceptions. But I love how you said it takes a lot of years of practice for that to (laughs) actually come into play because it actually takes a lot more energy for us to care and worry uh, about what others perceive about us. And in actual fact, we can't change what their – because their perception is from their lens and their lens is – it's their values, it's their beliefs, it comes from their internal working. So we actually can't change that within people about what they think about us anyway. So that in itself is a really powerful skill that you have to take with you on your platform. But I want to, you you mentioned it before, you're a mum and I think, is it a two and a half year old and a five month old you've got? Yes. Yep. That's right. How does all this life experience make you feel and how does it make you approach parenthood to ensure that your kids don't feel pressure about their body image? Yeah, another great question. And I think, you know, I ask myself this every single day, you know, how can I protect them? How can I make sure they don't make the same mistakes I did? And, you know, having a daughter, how can I, you know, shield her from body image issues? How can I make sure she never, ever goes down the path I did with an eating disorder? And I've realized that I can't shield her as much as I want to. I can't put my children in a bubble. Um, The best thing I can do is be a role model and show them through my own behavior, through my own actions and through the words that I say that I am okay with who I am and that I'm respectful of other people and that diversity and difference is just a part of everyday life. Um, it, it's not made into a big thing. And because of that, because of you know the, the way that I behave, I'm hoping that my children absorb that and that's what they're able to, to, to learn from. And I think, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Often, you know, when I'm in the park with my children, um, other children will say, oh, mummy, that lady only has one arm. And the reaction that parents give um, will either be, shh, don't say that, or quick, let's go. You know, that they're embarrassed for me. They're embarrassed about the situation. And I've written many blogs on this and the best response that parents can give is to just acknowledge what their child has said. Um, and, you know, for example, that lady only has one arm. Yes, she does. You know, 
acknowledge it at the time because if you then take your child away from that situation and then talk to them or later on when it's no longer an issue for them, you know, children, you know, they're living in the moment, they forget quickly, they're focused on things for a short time. If you bring it up later, oh, remember when we were at the park earlier today and you noticed that lady only had one arm, the, the I suppose, um, uh, focus on that again at a later time tells the child or oh, hang on there's something different about this scenario mum and dad are talking to me about this again so what what's wrong with this situation maybe I shouldn't talk about those you know that lady that I saw with the disability um and and telling a child to shush or whatever it just lets them know oh that's not okay and so the reason I use that as an example is because I'm trying to do the opposite, you know, with my children, just be very aware that if they see somebody, you know, with a disability or somebody that looks different and they make a comment, all I can do is acknowledge what they've said. Um, you know, I don't always have the answers. And I think it's important for our children to know that, you know, mum and dad don't don't have all the answers all the time. And if they see, for example, somebody in a wheelchair and my daughter says, oh, mum, that man's in a wheelchair. Yes, he is in a wheelchair. You know, I think it, because then it's like, oh, okay, well, no big deal, you know. And, and so I hope that by living my life like that and, and being a role model for my children, they're able to then, you know, adapt that into their, their own life. And another great thing I think that about our immediate family is, you know, I have married um, a, a man not from Australia. So I have, my husband is Iranian. Um, and so there's a different culture. There's a different religion that we have been able to immerse into our immediate family. And I think our children are blessed because of that, because of all the differences they see every single day. And, and so I hope, you know, when it comes to the, the body image and, and the disability and the eating disorder and all these things that, you know, as a parent, I'll be forever fearful of, you know, wanting to protect my children. But I think if I can just be honest with my kids and if I can just, again, it comes back to talking to them about these issues, talking to them about how they're feeling, talking to them about how I'm feeling, then I would like to think that that will break down a lot of barriers that I know I had growing up, not being able to verbalise how I was thinking and feeling to my own parents. And and so, you know, not to say, you know, that my parents made mistakes or anything like that. I'm just saying that through everything I've experienced, um, I think the the best gift I can give my kids is open and honest communication. Brilliant. I love that. Role modelling is the best form of teaching and especially to the young ones. They they take on so much of what they see you do as a parent. Absolutely. And what about for you then being a mum and, and the process of pregnancy because obviously pregnancy not only changes your body shape yeah. dramatically but there's a lot of hormonal changes that you can't really control that can lead to some <laughs> pretty rough places in the mind so how how was your experience with pregnancy and even after birth and now yeah it again, it was really quite challenging for me. This was a time where I knew that I had to be very um, aware of what was going on and I had to be very trusting in myself and trusting in the process because I knew that I could have easily fallen back into old habits, whether physical old habits or old habits of thinking, um, you know, about the changes that were taking place in my body. And it was. There are times when it was really difficult. I didn't like that my body was changing. And, and I, I don't think women are given the opportunity to talk about that side of pregnancy enough. You know, we think, oh, you're glowing and it's an amazing experience, which it absolutely is. But there's also days where 
you know, I was uncomfortable. I was in pain, you know. I've got all this weight that I'm carrying. My back's hurting. My clothes don't fit. I don't feel comfortable. I um, was very um, sick, so which brought up a lot of issues for me, um, you know, in terms of having to, to be sick and not being able to control that and, and trying to sort of watch what I was eating, making sure I was eating enough, not too less, and not, but also not wanting to focus on it too much and just allowing the process to, you know, if I was having cravings, just just acknowledge that and and allow myself to, to eat the foods that my body was telling me that it wanted. Um, and But, yeah, I found it to be very, very challenging challenging and afterwards as well you know it you want your body to to bounce back um but it doesn't and I had to really practice a lot of mindfulness and a lot of you know uh, internal language and and also verbal verbalizing how I was feeling and allowing myself to just sit in those moments of thinking you know what I feel really uncomfortable now because my clothes don't fit I've got a newborn baby this is such an emotionally trying time, you know, I'm struggling with no sleep, I'm struggling with these new hormones, how do I process all of that? And, you know, it's extremely struggling, uh, challenging, sorry, and and I, I had many days where I struggled, but I think because of everything I had gone through in the years before, I, I really did take the time to slow down and just allow myself to be aware of what was going on. And I think that helped tremendously. Um, but I know that so many, many, many women struggle, you know, becoming, you know, a parent for the first time because of just how different it is. And the transitions, like you said, it's hormonal. It's, you know, it, your body physically is going through so much. And then to have this huge adjustment to be a parent where, life is never really the same, you know, in, in a wonderful way. Like I, I love being a mother and I'm so grateful um, that my body allowed me to have children because there was a time there when, um, you know, the professionals really thought that I had done too much damage because of my eating disorder that I may not be able to have children. So I'm very, very, very grateful. Um, but that doesn't take away the fact that some days, you know, even now I'm five months since having my son that I look in the mirror and think, oh, my body's not what it used to be. Will it ever be the same? you know, can I be okay with that? How will I get to the place where I'm okay with that? You know, I'm not able to do the same amount of exercise that I used to do. Um, and, and it, and like we were saying before, it comes back down to the mind and being able to, to talk myself through it, allow myself to, to just sit with a day where I'm feeling pretty shitty and go, okay, that's how I feel at the moment. I know due to past experience that that this moment will pass and everything will be okay. I'll feel okay whether it be in a couple of hours or tomorrow. Um, but for now, just allow myself to sit with those feelings that are a little bit uncomfortable and, and go through the process. Um, you know, I look at my children and just think, you know, that, that they're amazing, but also motherhood drives me crazy sometimes. And I, I wish <laughs> that I was able to have part of my old life back, you know, and I and I, I think through that, you know, I, I try and be, be honest and, um, with when I do talks as well, you know, because becoming a mother, this is a huge part of my life now. But through through body image, um, yeah, it, it can be very challenging. And I know a lot of women actually um, suffer more after having children, you know, than they did before because of the changes, and they're just not able to to work through the process of it, um, accepting that you know having children. Um, is a huge transformation, both physically and mentally. And I think I'm getting there. I think, you know, it, it took me about 18 months after having my, my daughter, my first child, to 
really accept motherhood and to accept everything that motherhood brings with it. And now with my son, I'm a lot more relaxed. I'm a lot more flexible. And I, I know that in time, when the time is right, if I want to focus, you know, on, on exercise more so than I am now, then I'll be able to have that opportunity. And so it really is just going back to, to taking one day at a time and knowing that I've got a great supportive husband, I've got a great supportive family. And so that if there was ever a moment where I thought, you know what, I'm struggling more at the moment than I thought that I would, what can I do to support myself, you know, to get through this particular phase? But yeah, um, but motherhood is, has been difficult. And, you know, I, I look at my body now and I think um, it, I've had two children, yes, and that is a huge, huge accomplishment. And I have to remind myself every day to look at my body and find or focus on the things that uh, my body enables me to do rather than look at the things, you know, that I think oh, I can't do that now or, you know, I haven't been in the pool for years so I wouldn't be able to swim fast and all of that sort of stuff. Um, You're obviously yeah. very, very connected with yourself internally to be able to some, listen to that language pop out around you went to mindfulness and you knew that slowing down was the right thing to do. You you experienced those thoughts and those emotions, but you sat with them and you didn't attach to them. And there's some really great deep understanding of your thoughts, feelings, behaviors, dynamics there. And I, see, I hear a bit of acceptance and commitment therapy type stuff coming through. Is that Are they skills from when you were working with professionals previously or are you still working with people? Uh, working with um, professionals previously, you know, I think um, I never take for granted, you know, the insight that they were able to have and the, the information they were able to give me. Um, and, you, you know, I think the most valuable thing, one of the counsellors said, you know, I've worked with psychiatrists, psychologists, um, mentors, counsellors, a whole range, you know, nutritionists, everyone to help support me to get where I am today. But, um it was one counsellor who said, you, you got to be honest, mate. And he's like, not with me. you got to be honest with yourself. And for whatever reason at that particular moment, it just struck a chord. And I thought I had been lying to myself and trying to convince everybody else that I was okay, you know, um, but really I was only doing an injustice to, to myself. And he said those words and I thought, you're right. Like it doesn't matter what I say to anyone. I know the truth. I know my own truth. I know whether I'm living my life authentically or, or not. And, um, you know, I mean, that was right at the beginning of my recovery journey. And now I always reflect on that and think he was so right. And everything that every professional said has helped me to, to maintain um, the ability to work through those skills and to have the tools to approach every day. And so I'll be forever grateful for everything that the professionals were able to give me. Now, I think I'm able to be in this state of mind thanks to the work that I do in continuing to share my story. It's kind of therapeutic in many ways. And so uh, I think if I wasn't doing the work that I do, I would definitely still be engaging the help of professionals. And I think, you know, at different times in our lives, we all need to for, for a multitude of reasons. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, um, I think there's, you know, power to everyone who decides, you know, I'm going to go and actually sort out a professional to help me work through this. Like, you know, what an amazing thing to be able to have the foresight to, to say that and to acknowledge that. And, and again, I think there's a shift happening uh, generational and, so, you know, within society that that's not seen as, as a bad thing anymore. In fact, um, I respect people 
more when they're able to say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a counsellor or I'm working with a mentor to help me, you know, with with different things in my life at the moment. Like what a fabulous thing. And so, um, yeah, I, I know that in different time, stages of my life in the future, I'll be able to go back to professionals and say, look, you know, I'm struggling in this particular area. Can you help me again? Or, you know, to sort sorry, search out somebody new who can help me in, in a new obstacle that I'm faced with, which, you know, is, is inevitable. But I think at the moment um, I have reached a point where I'm, I'm quite content and, and feeling very self-confident, but it is all thanks to the, the advice and the information and the help that I receive from the professionals. So without them, I absolutely would not be doing what I am today. Brilliant. I love hearing the ripple effect of how long through people's lives that those skills and those tools, the habits, the strategies can really come to play and be a powerful part for you to establish the life that you have. And, and like we've spoken about, the, the deeper impact that you can take all those skills with you into your, your public speaking, even into your parenting, into your relationships, everything. Exactly, exactly. Now, we mentioned earlier that you're a very sought-after public speaker and we can hear why from, from this episode. You have so much value to offer in this space and I'd love to hear what specific advice you have for the listeners on what action they can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities? And this is a question that I ask all my guests on the podcast. Well, do you know what? I think a lot of us, are fe- we're fearful of change. We're fearful of things that we we don't know. And I think if we can allow ourselves to trust change and the transformations that come with that, because change and transformation in itself is bringing forth or inventing. You know, it's something that is created and is inherently expansive and infinite. And I just think that, you know, that that's so empowering in itself. What we need to be able to do is realize we don't need to make drastic changes. You know, we, we, we don't need to be quitting our jobs and, you know, going on a yoga retreat and, and, you know, living the vegan lifestyle in order to contribute positively to humanity. It's great if you want to do that. Absolutely. But don't ever underestimate the power you have to impact yourself or somebody else's life just day to day. And I, I think, you know, um, we can simply be good humans every day and and that's what's going to contribute to humanity and to the people around us, you know. And I go back to saying as a mother, I have a responsibility to keep moving forward and paving a way for my daughter and my son, showing them through my behaviour, through my actions, you know, that tolerance and acceptance starts at home. I don't need to be anything other than who I am and what I'm doing today. And I think if more people realise that, if they realise the power that they have within them um, to make a difference in the lives of those around them, you know, that is huge. That is actually quite phenomenal. And I think, you know, we, we see all these stories in the media about, you know, people that go on to, to live, you know, incredible lives and making massive changes and, and devoting themselves to other people, which, I, like I said, is all fantastic. But... I, I, I fear that sometimes people then look at themselves and go, well, I could never do that. I can never be that. Well, we're all, we, you already are that person. You already can do that with the little things that you're doing in your life today. And so I think if we can stop and just think, what, you know, what am I grateful for? Um, 
what lessons have I learned through the challenges that I face, you know, and how now can I apply the positives of that to the immediate people in my life? Because like you tapped on before, that's the beginning of the ripple effect and that's where it's important. So you don't have to make all these drastic changes in order to be, you know, a good person. We are all good people, you know, we're all, you know, global citizens and we can all contribute positively just by being a good person in everything that we do day to day. And I think if more people people were able to to understand that and and be accepting of who they are and what they do in their day-to-day life then we're going to reach that that place you know I hope within society and within this generation where we're like yeah you know what I I'm doing a good thing I'm being who I am and I don't have to be bigger or better than that in order to to positively contribute to to my community or to society and I think if we can start having conversations around that it's going to make a hell of a difference. That's so powerful. The The power of the marginal gains. There's so much that you said there that we could unpack, but <laughs> I'm going to let you go shortly, Jess. But before we do, you're a very giving person and you give your time, your knowledge, your vulnerability and energy. And giving is also one of my top core values. And I give every guest on the show a gift and it's for you giving your time and everything else. And I'm giving you one of our charity teas that we make. And this one was actually designed by Sarah Walsh, who's a Paralympic leg amputee long jumper. And the charity she chose to donate all the profits to is Limbs for Life, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, (laughs) yes, definitely. Amazing. And they help uh, amputees and their families and create great support and guidance in any way needed. So I'm going to send you one of those teas. Oh, fantastic. I will wear it with pride. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We've actually, uh, so we have ambassadors that create their own designs and they choose a charity that's close to their heart. And we we do all the back end work and then we donate 100% of the profits to each of the teas sold to their chosen charity. Oh, so amazing. Amazing. So two-part question here, Jess. Where can we learn more about you? So social media, website, etc. And how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Oh, well, you can get in touch with me via my website, which is jessicasmith.com.au or on social me- media, just jessicasmith27 on Instagram or Facebook and I would love for people to connect with me you know um, to start a conversation or just you know uh, have a chat about anything and everything and that's going to be the way to help me and to help um, one another you know I think if we can continue talking you know it's not about um, having to to do too much or to give too much I think starting those conversations is what is going to make a huge difference in everybody's life in my life and so by connecting with me um, you know is just a start so please um, like touch base with me through social media website email anything um, like you said I am always willing and open to have a chat and I encourage other people to do the same. I think the best thing that I can say is to pay it forward and so continue to have these conversations with everyone in your life that you meet because the more people that start talking about the the power of our mind and the 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 influence that being mindfulness and, and having that level of awareness is, the more people that can know about that, you know, the better society is going to be. So let's just keep talking and talking until people are sick of talking. (laughs) (laughs) I'll link up all that in the show notes too so people can find you easily enough. Now, before we finish up, is there anything else you'd like to say or anything you'd like to ask me? Um... 
Oh my goodness! No, well, I'm just have been amazed at the work that you know that you've been doing and following your journey after all these years, and you know, touching back on what we said in the beginning, how we sort of met originally, and where our both our journeys have gone to now bring us back to to sort of doing very you know similar things, but also quite different. Um, I think it's amazing, and I think if more people were able to to learn about the work you're doing, you know, in in this space of mindfulness and mental health and wellness, um, you know, I think. It, it would just be phenomenal. So I'm going to do everything I can to to talk about uh, the work you're doing and share that as well because I think the power is in, um, you know, people like us who have the voices and know that we have a responsibility to share that on behalf of other people. So it would be my pleasure to do that. I'm so grateful that you've asked me to to contribute and share my story and I, I just hope that the listeners enjoy. Jess, you're a legend. You're a courageous role model to not only any kids and mums in the world but to all humans. Keep shining your beautiful light to the world. Oh, you're a legend. Thank you so much, Roberto. There she is, people. Make sure you go into the show notes of this episode and find the links to Jess's website and social media and be sure to not only follow but also support her journey. You can find the book on her website, Little Miss Jessica Goes to School. And if you're listening to this sometime in the future beyond April 2018, the other parts of the series might also be on there. If I was a school teacher, I'd be chasing this book down and hounding my principal to get it in for all the kids. And one day when I'm a parent, I'll proudly be reading these books to my children. Even though they'll be surrounded by disability through my circles of mates, I think it's a brilliant way to educate the norms even more. You heard Jess say how powerful the tools are that she learned to help navigate her life and not only get through the darkest times of her mental health battles, but also to be the best mum, the advocate for mental health and body images and so much more. Skills and habits like this are taught in our mental strength training online program. We take you through a deeper understanding of your mind and your emotional intelligence and teach you habits tools and strategies to optimize your life you can check out all the info about the program and also read some testimonials of previous course participants who share how impactful it's been in their lives at yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash coaching and you can also go to the show notes of this episode and click on the link there and as always remember this is your life journey your life of impact.